Welcome to our remote sermon podcast this week. My name is Esther. I've been attending Highway at the Palo Alto site for a few years, and I am so excited to study God's Word with you. I thought I would start by sharing a fun fact about our family. We named our first son Eric after Eric Little. Some of you may know him from the movie Chariots of Fire. It's about two men, Harold Abrahams and Eric Little, who both ran in the 1924 Olympics, but ran for very different reasons. Abraham says at one point, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. In another scene, Eric tells his sister, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Abraham's ran to be seen by others. Eric Little ran for God alone, and this became shockingly clear when he gave up an almost sure gold medal in his best event, the 100 meters, because of his conviction that God did not want him to run on the Sabbath. Instead, he watched from the stands as Abraham's won the gold. Eric instead ran the 400 meters, a race no one took him seriously in. Before the race, he drew the outside lane, which was the worst lane, because you started in front of the other racers and couldn't see them to pace yourself. Indeed, Eric left the starting line at a blistering pace that no one thought he could keep up. But amazingly, he did, even expanding his lead to win the gold medal and set a new world record. The movie stops there. But what is even more amazing to me is that Eric left his athletic career at the height of his performance ability and fame to serve the rest of his life as an unseen missionary in China. When the Japanese invaded, Eric had to make the difficult decision to send his pregnant wife and their two little girls out of China for safety. He was eventually sent to an internment camp where he died, separated from his family for the last four years of his life. 63 years after his death, the Chinese government revealed that Eric had been included in a prisoner exchange deal between Britain and Japan, but had given up his place to a pregnant woman. Eric was someone who ran the race of life the same way he ran on the track, driven from within, not looking at other people, but performing for God alone. We're preaching a series through the Sermon on the Mount along the theme, The Heart of the Kingdom. Now, to be clear, citizenship to the kingdom of God is by grace. These are not a list of entry criteria. We are not being told, live like this and you will become a Christian, but because you are a Christian, live like this. Indeed, for those of us who are under the rule and reign of God, this is the clearest picture we have of how we ought to live. This week, we are looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, where Jesus shifts from looking at moral righteousness, how we should live in relation to others, to religious righteousness, how we should rightly live out our faith. Now, in case you're wondering what the point of this entire section is, Jesus gives us the punchline right at the start in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That is his thesis statement, which he then applies to three areas of religion, giving, praying, and fasting. Now, whole sermons could be preached on each one of these topics, which we don't have the time to do. Instead, I'd like to look at these three sections in parallel because Jesus uses the same format in discussing each. 
he begins all three in the same surprising way. He says, and when you give, and when you pray, and when you fast, not if. He doesn't commend us for doing these things. He assumes that we are. He's not talking about whether we're doing them, but how we're doing them. And as he says right at the beginning, how we're doing them should be in secret, unseen by others, for God alone. Now, this is interesting for us right now, right? Because of the pandemic, most of us are being forced to live lives that are far more unseen than usual. Much of the outward framework of our lives, like work, school, services, practices, meetings, have been stripped away, leaving us literally less seen by others. We're all like Eric Little, running a race we never expected to run, stuck in the outside lane where we can't see anyone else. But that actually is at the heart of how we're supposed to be living. And Jesus speaks to this. He tells us here both why this is hard and why it is important. So let's look at that together. First, what keeps us from living the unseen life of faith well? Secondly, what is the key to living the unseen life? Lastly, how do we actually get there? So three things. What keeps us from living the unseen life? What is the key to living the unseen life? And how do we actually get there? First, what keeps us from living the unseen life well? Let's look at what Jesus says about both the religious hypocrites and the irreligious pagans. In all three sections, Jesus says, do not be like the religious hypocrites. In verse 2, he says, And when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Now, it's unclear whether these were actual trumpets, and maybe hyperbole, but the point was they wanted to draw loud attention to their giving. In verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Back then, there were designated times when you would stop wherever you were and turn towards the temple to pray. The Pharisees were known for timing it so that when the time came to pray, they were standing in a particularly prominent place, maybe in a very public corner or in the right kind of neighborhood. In verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. The Pharisees fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays from sundown to sundown. When they fasted, they abstained not only from food, but from washing their clothes or themselves. Normally, people would clean themselves by anointing their skin with olive oil and then scraping off the oil, which does not sound appealing to me. But the point is, the Pharisees would not anoint or clean themselves, so it would be obvious they were fasting. In all these cases, the Pharisees practiced their faith in a strategic and premeditated way for the purpose of being seen so that they could be praised by others. This word praised in verse 2 means to glorify. It's the same word used in Matthew 5.16, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Pharisees were literally taking for themselves the glory that should be God's. And in doing so, they were aborting the very purpose for which these spiritual practices were designed. But religious hypocrisy goes deeper than wanting to make ourselves look good to others. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What is he saying there? Most of us are right hand dominant. So this is like when your right hand gives and your left hand says, good job, right hand. There's a sense in which we brag to ourselves. We congratulate ourselves. We keep a record to ourselves of how good we are. We give or fast because it makes us feel good about ourselves. When we pray, we talk to ourselves more than we dialogue with God. You see, hypocrisy is ultimately about pride, about wanting to make ourselves look good to ourselves. It's not really about other people at all. We want to be seen by others to the degree that it makes us feel good about ourselves. This is so insidious, but it keeps us from being able to live unseen. Jesus also talks about the irreligious. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, this word Gentile, also translated pagan, is used in the New Testament to mean the non-religious. Isn't it interesting that the non-religious are praying? Most of us would probably assume they wouldn't be. And Jesus says they heap up empty phrases. This is one word in Greek, and it's fascinating because not only is this the only time it's used in the Bible, it's the only time it's used in the entirety of Greek literature. It gets at the idea of having an intense torrent of words, not just many words, but frantic words. And back then, Gentiles would pray like this. They would pile up many names for the many gods in their prayers, hoping their sacrifices to these gods would get them what they wanted. Now, what does this have to do with people in the Bay Area? Robert Wuthnow, a professor of sociology at Princeton University, wrote a book called After Heaven, where he contrasts two models of spirituality. The first model is the inhabiting model, where people went to sacred places out of family tradition. The newer model is the seeking model, where people reject religious traditions, where spirituality is less about being somewhere than taking a journey where you never really arrive, where you do what's good for you and I do what's good for me. And whereas the older model is more culture-driven, the newer model is more technique-driven. Prayer, meditation, spiritual practices are popular, but you're not necessarily trying to reach God. You're using the divine to get the kind of inner peace you need to get to your own goals. So whereas the old model is a way of baptizing the social order, the new model can be a way of baptizing your personal way of life, saying, this is the world I want. I'm just using spirituality to get there. This happens around here. Our kids learn about meditation and relaxation techniques in elementary school. Those all can be good things, but ultimately, they're tools. They can seem spiritual, like the Gentiles here who are praying with many words, but in the end, they can still be empty, still be about some way of earning salvation or some form of self-actualization. In the end, it's still about us, and that's what keeps us from living the unseen life of faith. Whether it's the religious hypocrites relying on others to feed their pride or the irreligious relying on techniques to achieve their own ends. So now we come to the second part. What is the key to living the unseen life? Notice that Jesus does not say the word God, Greek theos, anywhere in this passage. He says, Father, 
Pater, what a child would call their daddy. Look at how the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father. Some of us are so familiar with this prayer that the words have been leached of meaning, but think about how incredibly intimate this phrase is. If you didn't know who I was and you overheard me saying, my Dave, you would assume that person was my husband or maybe my son, someone intimately connected with me. You see, Jesus is saying at the heart of the kingdom is an intimate relationship with the Father. The key to living the unseen life is understanding who God is as our Father. There are two aspects of that fatherhood that Jesus brings out here, being seen and being rewarded. He says in each section, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's in verse 4, verse 6, and verse 18. So let's talk about both of those. First, how does a father see? If you have a child, you know how much you're always watching your child all the time, even when they don't know it. Sometimes, especially when they don't know it. I used to love creeping in to watch our kids sleeping in their cribs. They just look so angelic. You wouldn't even guess how long it had taken them to get to sleep. You look at them sleeping and you're like, Oh, we could have a couple more. (laughs) Parents see their kids all the time and in ways no one else does. Conversely, children long to be seen by their parents. I always thought a curious example of this was how our kids, even though they were fully potty trained and could handle going to the bathroom all by themselves, still needed to tell us about it. They would interrupt me and be like, Mom, I need to pee. And I'd be like... You go do that. I see you. But the truth is, we all long to be seen, not as the student or employee or parent or potential vector for a virus, but for who we truly are. And Jesus says over and over, your father is a father who sees. He sees in secret. He sees you right now where you are, stuck at home where no one else sees you. God sees you fully. Do you see how this is so much better than the kind of seeing you get from other people in a moment of adulation? They're not seeing the whole you. It doesn't last, and it just makes you a slave to needing their praise more and more. But the seeing of the Father is both freeing and illuminating. It's freeing because the more we experience it, the less we need to be seen by others. It's illuminating because the more we open ourselves to the Father seeing, the more we see ourselves too for who we truly are. Jesus also says that God is a Father who rewards us. Now, isn't it bad or not entirely wholesome to be motivated by reward? Shouldn't we want to practice our faith for its own sake? It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't say we should. Look back at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He implies that it's okay to be motivated by reward. I think there's even the suggestion that we're created for reward, to receive something for our work that truly reflects the intention and worth and effort of it. C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, The Weight of Glory. Quote, We must not think that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. 
there are different kinds of reward. There is a reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. God promises that when we appear before Christ in judgment, we will each receive what is due for what we have done. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.10. But even now, there is a kind of reward that is the activity itself in consummation, that is the fuller experience of the longing or motivation that led us to do the work in the first place, and that in fact reveals what our true motivation was. Lewis is saying it's not the concept of reward that is bad, but the kind of reward. The kind of reward that the Pharisees were after had nothing to do with the motives that ought to be behind the practice of faith. And so it lasted only for the moment. Jesus says in verses 2, 5, and 16, they have received their reward. This verb was a term used in commercial transactions. It meant to be paid in full. The Pharisees did get some acknowledgement in the moment, but Jesus is clear. That is all the reward they are going to get. Nothing further is due them. But the kind of reward God gives his children who practice their faith only for him to see is the kind that will last forever and that even now is an experience of his glory and presence that is the very consummation of why we practice our faith to begin with. If you think about it, the real reason we want the praise of others or end up turning our spirituality into a way to get outcomes we want is because we're searching for meaning and identity. We're like Harold Abrahams trying to prove the reason for our existence, searching for answers to the questions, who am I? Do I have any real worth? And Jesus says, you do. You are the beloved son and daughter of a father who truly sees you for who you are and who has prepared for you the reward you were created for. As long as you don't have that, you'll keep searching for that from others. You will be overly affected by what others think of you or by how you feel about yourself, and you'll keep working for empty rewards that don't fully satisfy or last. So, the key to living the unseen life is being in intimate relationship with our Father who sees and rewards us. Now, lastly, how do we actually get there? How do we live into that relationship? I'm going to suggest two ways. First, we examine our lives in secret. Tim Keller once put it something like this. Let me ask you a question. How do you know if you're a hypocrite? Most of us would apply some kind of moral test, like you don't have integrity in your sex life or in how you spend your money. But Jesus says that's not the acid test. The acid test is that you don't have a prayer life. Jonathan Edwards gave a sermon called Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer, where he says there's only one thing you don't do for show in the Christian life. It's secret prayer. Everything else someone sees, everything else you get some kind of credit for, secret prayer is the only thing you do just for God. 
It's the only way you know if you're really living for God alone and not for anyone else or because you're in a certain environment. The same could be said for secret giving or secret fasting. Jesus says in verse 6, Go into your room and shut the door. This word room actually means an inner store chamber, like a closet, a place where outer distractions are intentionally and entirely removed, where you are alone with God. Jesus says, go into that place and ask yourself, do I have a life here? What does my faith look like in the spaces where no one else sees? You know, many of us may feel like we've been forced into our closets, so to speak, during this time of quarantine, but it can be a valuable opportunity to examine ourselves. Do you have a secret prayer life? Do you give without anyone seeing or without keeping track of it to yourself? Do you fast? That's probably the one most of us do the least. Have you considered fasting or learning more about it? The second way to live into that relationship with our Father is by experiencing the gospel. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus has just finished the Lord's Prayer and says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, why does he go there? Why is forgiveness the one point from the Lord's Prayer he wants to comment on? Is he saying that God's forgiveness is conditional? No, the rest of the Bible is very clear on that. What he is saying is that when we realize what it means that we are sinners, that we can't get to righteousness ever on our own, that our only hope is that God forgives us because of what Jesus has done for us. When we are at that place, we can't refuse to forgive another person. And thus, if we can't forgive another person, we ought to examine whether or not we've received forgiveness ourselves. You see, forgiveness is like a litmus test of how much we not only know the gospel in our minds, but have actually experienced it in our hearts. And Jesus uses this example here to tell us that living out our faith in secret can only happen to the degree that we have the gospel driven into our hearts, because we can't do any of this on our own. The only reason we can have a relationship with God as a father is because Jesus himself perfectly lived out everything he says here. If fasting is denying your body, he gave up his physical body for us. He prayed the Lord's Prayer in Gethsemane when he said, Father, not my will be done. And on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. He gave to the needy. He gave his very life for us who need rescue from our sins. And he did it all largely unseen and without public recognition. No one at the time, not even his closest friends, understood the magnitude of the sacrifice he was making. He died without being seen and without reward so that we might be always seen and have the reward of eternal life. Eric Little says at one point in the movie, everyone runs in her own way or his own way. And where does the power come from to see the race to its end? From within. The power to run this race, unseen by anyone but God, comes from within. We have to experience the gospel and its power within us every day to become so consumed by love for God that our desire to live for anyone else fades, 
all the practices of our faith have to come from that place within. And only then can we get to the point where instead of saying, hallowed be my name, which is what the Pharisees and Gentiles were saying, essentially, instead of saying, hallowed be my name, my kingdom come, my will be done, we can say, our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. May we live our faith in these unseen times, not for others or even for ourselves, but first of all, and most of all, for God alone. May we experience him as our Father who sees and rewards us 